Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. I'm Steve Baldwin, and the focus of today's show, a deeper dive into COVID and schools. Before we get to where we are now, with schools reopening in the fall of 2021, it's worth a quick look back to where we were just a few months ago in the spring of this year. In April of 2021, after a year of dealing with a global pandemic that is COVID-19, a year in which the words social and distancing became forever linked and wearing masks, especially indoors and around people outside of our household, became the new norm, which, by the way, we should still be doing. And just a blink before that in February, gaining access to a third vaccine, the single shot Johnson and Johnson vaccine was approved for emergency use in February. Things were finally starting to look better. This is the director of our department, Dr. Barbara Ferrer at a press briefing held on April 12th, 2021. I'm really grateful for all of our residents and businesses that are doing everything they can to stop the spread of the deadly virus that's claimed the lives of so many of our friends and family. And like so many of you, I do feel hopeful for the first time in a long time, which makes it even more critical that we all follow the safety measures. We cannot let up, not now. Please continue wearing your masks and physically distancing from others when you're in public. And please review information about the safety and effectiveness of the three vaccines currently available to protect from COVID-19. So when it is your turn to get vaccinated, you feel comfortable taking this important step. And then the Delta variant of COVID-19 hit LA County, almost like pandemic version 2.0, as contagious as chickenpox, and we saw an increase in the number of cases and the rate of people testing positive. But thanks to the protection offered by the vaccines, fewer people got seriously sick, and by midsummer, many elements of life that we missed so much during 2020, eating in restaurants, going to the movies, seeing friends and family, returned to what felt almost like pre-pandemic normal. The state lifted its blueprint for a safer economy on June 15th, and many school districts announced they would be open for in-person learning in the fall. Which brings us to today. School is back in session with most K-12 through districts offering at least partial in-person learning. And while it's undeniable that kids benefit from being in school, in a classroom, with a teacher, the beginning of the school year has some parents worried. This is my friend Marion. We work together. She has two kids, one in kindergarten and one in second grade. This school year, I have a lot of apprehension, especially on the first day of school when I went onto campus because I saw how densely populated the school was. And, and being in the kindergarten area, there were so many kids and they were all so excited to be together and to play. And um, while most everybody was wearing a mask, you know, outside, even though guidelines say they don't have to be wearing a mask outside, there were still some people who weren't, but the kids were like right on top of each other and the parents were right on top of each other. And that made me feel very, very, very nervous. Very nervous. So on today's show, we'll hear from experts about how the Department of Public Health is working with schools to help keep kids and teachers safe and what parents can do to help keep their children safe as the school year begins. Up first, my friend and colleague, Marion. If you can just say your name and your job title and what you do for the department. Okay. Um, I'm Marion Eldahabi Marshall. I work 
for the Department of Public Health in Maternal, Child, and Adolescent Health Programs in the Research Evaluation Unit, and I'm a research analyst too. And just to be completely transparent, we work together. You and yes. I work together quite frequently. We meet every week of, on 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 projects in our division, and at least once a week. Yes, at least <laughs> at least once a week. Can you tell me a little bit about your family and how how many kids you have and their ages? Uh, my husband and I have two children. We have a daughter named Layla who is seven years old, and we have a son named Jack who is five. Each one of them is about to have a birthday, so they're about to be eight and six. Okay. And uh, are they both back in school now? Yes, they're both back in school. Uh, Jack is in kindergarten um, and Layla is in second grade. And they're both in the same school, finally. Mm. Uh, The original plan was to uh, have Jack attend TK last year at that same school. But when we realized that it would be mostly um, uh, remote, we decided to keep him at his preschool so that he could go every day and, you know, we could still actually function as workforce members. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. How, can you share, how, how has the pandemic impacted your family? Uh, you know, I think we're very fortunate, Steve. Uh, It was a little scary in the very beginning because, you know, both of the kids were sort of out of school and we had to try to balance interacting with them and keeping, you know, my daughter on track. She was at the time in kindergarten um, while also, you know, maintaining our professional responsibilities. We my husband's job has always been remote. So they were able, you know, to accommodate him just fine. And he made very few changes to the way that he actually works day to day. I I also, you know, obviously was very fortunate to um, be able to work from home, especially because we, we did have at the time a preschooler who was home. And after a while, it became like, you know, okay, Jack, you know, you just you go play, you know, you just go play while I try to work and try to manage my daughter's schooling. And, you know, my husband was like, you know, off in the garage doing all of his meetings because that's, you know, the nature of his work. Um, uh, and, And then after, you know, over time, we sort of normalized things. Jack went back to preschool most of the time and, you know, Layla's schooling became a bit more structured and she grew up a little bit. And so she was able to mostly manage that stuff by herself. So eventually the kids did get to go back to school. And when schools reopened up in September, Mm -hmm. were there any worries that you had, you know, before the school year started? What concerns did you have going in? The concerns that I had about this school year were more like, you know, the, the, the landscape had changed quite a lot. So people got used to having a lot more, um, a lot fewer restrictions. And so because they had fewer restrictions, you know, they weren't masking in the same situations anymore. They were mingling, you know, with each other more often. We just, I feel like collectively as a society and specifically within my community, we got much more lax. 
And this school year, I have a lot of apprehension, especially on the first day of school when I went onto campus because I saw how densely populated the school was. So at our elementary school, there's a separate kindergarten area. And then there's the area, the you know, the regular campus for, you know, first through fifth graders. Mm. And, and being in the kindergarten area, there were so many kids. And they were all so excited to be together and to play. And um, while most everybody was wearing a mask, you know, outside, even though guidelines say they don't have to be wearing a mask outside, there were still some people who weren't, but the kids were like right on top of each other and the parents were right on top of each other. And that made me feel very, very, very nervous, very Mm -hmm. nervous. Was there something that made you feel good? What did the school do right that, that caused you to feel safe to send your kids back? At the teacher level. Like I Mm. feel comfortable and confident that the teachers, that my children's teachers, you know, are doing the very best that they can to prevent transmission in their classrooms and to, you know, like teach the kids, you know, um, you know, things to be mindful of and procedures that they have to follow. You know, they spent the first week talking about procedures, about washing hands, about, you know, handling masks, et cetera. So I felt that was really great. And I and I have a lot of confidence in, in both of their teachers. Um, you know, the things that make me nervous and just apprehensive are just I just don't have control. You know, Steve, I don't have control. Yeah. And, you know, the the guidelines have changed about social distancing and who quarantines when there is a transmission, a positive case in a classroom and who gets notified. (laughs) So those Mm -hmm. things make me feel nervous. I don't have all of the information, so I can't make the decisions that I would make if I had all of the information. You, you mentioned that not only seeing the kids, you know, on top of each other and playing and while that is joyful to see them happy, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking and the, the parents crowding around too. I'm curious if you, have you talked to other parents and and if so, how are your friends with kids the same age feeling about sending their kids back? Um, I think what's happening, you know, we're forging a lot of new friendships here because my my one, you know, my son is, you know, this is his first year in grade school. So we're forging new friendships with new parents. And, you know, in addition to, you know, of course, keeping the ones that we've made, you know, throughout my daughter's couple of years at this school. Um, and with the new friendships, it's like you tend to gravitate towards the people that you can see probably have a similar perspective to your own about masking and, uh, all of the rest of it. Um, so I don't think that our perspectives really differ. I think that, but I do think that we are all sort of waiting and seeing we're just all in this sort of like we're we're tentatively hopeful that this will be uh like you said joyful a joyful time a joyful school year um and we're all waiting and seeing you know what's what's going to happen 
Part two, back to school. Dr. Rob Gilchuk is the Department of Public Health's lead for connecting with the education sector from preschool to universities. He also happens to be my boss. Good time? Yeah? So, are we comfortable doing this in here? With Where else would we do it? Well, I mean, we could, we could go on a conference. Now, room. to say that Dr. Gilchek has a sense of humor is a little bit like saying water is wet. And it's not every day that one gets to interview one's boss for a podcast. And my PE is coming up, so I couldn't resist taking a small risk at the onset. My name is Rob Gilchick. I'm a preventive medicine physician in Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. I've been here since 2007. I'm currently the section chief for child and adolescent health. And for this COVID-19 response, I've been the um, primary liaison to the education sector across the county all levels of education, early care and education, K-12 education, and higher education. And is it or is it not true that your staff, your regular day-to-day staff that report to you are among the best in the county, aren't they? I would like to think so, yes. <laughs> I would stand up to that. I, I, would, I would stand for that. And I'm not just saying that because I report to you on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) I wasn't referring to all the steps. (laughs) (laughs) Full disclosure for listeners, uh, Dr. Gilchek is my supervisor. So this is is not an unusual thing for us to be talking, although it is unusual for us to be talking with microphones in front of us. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, don't usually do that. Yes. Also, just so we're clear, we are in the same room. We are both wearing masks. We're sitting about 10 feet apart. And I think we're both fully vaccinated. But, and yet we're still taking precautions and, and you know, wearing masks. Public health department does follow its own guidance. And, and we are doing our best to, to remain socially distanced uh, even during this interview and wear masks. That's absolutely true. So important to, to just recognize that. So the topic of our episode today is COVID-19 and schools. And with schools back in session, uh, my, my kids are a little older now, so I've just got one in high school, but I know there are a lot of parents with younger kids who are concerned about their child's safety and teachers that are concerned about getting back into the classroom as well. And so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about some of the guidance and rules that we're giving schools to help keep kids and teachers safe. So what are we what are we doing? What are we providing to to help keep kids and teachers safe? Oh, a whole a whole slew of things. I mean, I think that what we I think it is fair to say that in fact uh, children, school-age children are actually probably in a safer environment when they are attending school than um, when they are in many other community settings, actually. Mm. Uh, this is because of the, you know, very uh, large, the large set of best practice recommendations and requirements that um, we have set up in schools. And this is because schools are sort of a, a well-supervised, you know, and 
highly managed environment and the very strong incentive that school administrators, teachers and staff have to keep to keep our kids safe and to keep themselves safe as well. So um, overall, schools are really a very safe environment. So, you know, uh, fir first thing, of course, is um, masking, universal masking indoors mm -hmm. is a requirement. Um, that's a state level requirement, county level requirement. Um, outdoors, masks are not required, but still recommended in certain settings, especially settings where um, where crowding is likely to occur. And, and this isn't just for schools, right? This is we're talking now anywhere indoors masking is required. Well, yeah, at this point in time, yes, our, our orders do require masking for everyone in indoors uh, setting, public settings, not in your private residence, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in, in any sort of uh, in public settings, masking is required indoors uh, at this time, regardless of vaccination status. And that's because uh, we are in a situation of high community transmission mm -hmm. at this point in time. It looks like um, we're experiencing some recovery from that. Numbers are, uh, in terms of number of cases and so forth, is beginning to drop somewhat. Hospitalization numbers are starting to come down again, which is uh, wonderful news. But um, precautions have been heightened somewhat because of the recent surge in cases that you know was going on over the last month, particularly through August. Mm -hmm. What about so you so you mentioned masking? Uh, what about airflow? Hmm. I, I've I've I know that ventilation is really important for schools for small well, of areas. Of course, right? yeah, absolutely. I, I mean the the first I mean the the first answer really or the first strategy to deal with ventilation issues um, is outdoors, outside as much as possible. You move things outside, the risks uh, fall dramatically. Um, obviously, there's, you know, infinite air exchange and ventilation in outdoor spaces. So um, that that really lowers the risk quite a bit from um, from airborne spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. Now, again, if people are going to be in close contact and go in a crowd together outdoors, there's still a there's still a risk of droplet spread directly from person to person which is why we mentioned one may even still want to wear masks outdoors if they're going to be in rather crowded situations with not much distancing. But um, in terms of indoor activity, and you know, uh, understandably schools may not be able to move every, everything outdoors, in, in indoor spaces, um, because of the limited air exchange, uh, the risk does rise. So someone in a, in a room, in a classroom, say, is infected, and is breathing large numbers of particles into the air. Um, they may be asymptomatic, so neither they or the other people in the room may even know this, but um, if the air is stagnant and not flowing freely or not exchanging, um, the air in the room can become quite contaminated over time, right? And there can be spread even uh, uh, to distant parts of the room. So there's a lot, there's some strategies that really need to be followed regarding ventilation. If out, so if you can't move things outdoors, um, you, you, you want to open up doors and windows if possible uh, to try and increase, you know, the, um, the flow of outside air into the room. 
and vice versa indoor you want to you want to exchange the air obviously without with outdoor air you could set up um fan system but uh you don't just want a fan blowing in the room which is just going to create turbulence and move the air around or move particles around for more people to breathe the best way to use the fan is to have a fan facing out facing out like out a window Right, mm. and therefore it's going to create a flow, like blowing, of blowing the air out. out. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, if the room does have um, mechanical ventilation and HVAC system, mm-hmm. you certainly want to make sure that the system is operating at um, you know highest uh, um, highest level of efficiency. Uh, you want to maximize the exchange of indoor and outdoor air. So you want to bring in the outdoor air 100%, whatever the highest setting is. You can increase the efficiency of the air filters. Um, And there's a a standard that's called the the MERV standard, and um, which I believe numbers from like one through 20. And the recommendation is to have air filters at least at a level of MERV 13 or better. Um, and then in it, additionally, um, if, if resources are available, uh, schools may want to use portable air purifiers as well that they can place in the room, you know, with HEPA filters. And that also increases the clean, you know, a, the air cleaning capacity. So quite a few, quite a few different um, strategies available to improve ventilation. But it is critical. If you're in an indoor space, ventilation is key. Absolutely. I read some guidance around teachers using seating charts and how that's important now. Uh, Aside from knowing the names of the kids in the class, why is using a seating chart important? Yeah, that is uh, that is helpful. For some reason, I I always think back to my uh, freshman calculus course in college and Professor Starr, Norton Starr, who was quite a star. He was a great faculty <laughs> member. But yeah, he was one of these guys, one of these Socratic teachers who would call on you by name and mm-hmm. you didn't know, you couldn't figure out how he knew your name. But he actually was a college professor who used a seating chart. Hmm. But it does, have, it does have some value for disease control as well in terms of disease mitigation. So we now have a situation where we uh, have cases, right, turning up in the school. Uh, Many of these are identified just through the um, um, asymptomatic screening programs, right? So uh, Mm -hmm. a case, again, may be an asymptomatic person. They're identified through a testing program. Um, The school realizes, well, this child, this student has been in the classroom the last couple of days. So technically there's there's some potential exposure there because the infectious period um, for a confirmed case is considered to start uh, 48 hours or two days, either before onset of symptoms or if they're asymptomatic, two days before the date of their test. So now we've got a situation where you have a positive case. We know they've been in the classroom the last couple of days, so there may be exposure to the other students. Now, how are we going to identify who the close contacts are? Um, well, uh, unless a teacher has a photographic memory and knows exactly where everyone sit- knows everyone's name and knows where everyone was sitting in relation to the case, it could be quite challenging, mm-hmm. right, to figure mm-hmm. out who really were the close contacts. 
Close contacts is defined as being less than six feet away from a confirmed case for a total time of greater than 15 minutes over a full day period. Uh, so it's cumulative time over a day. Uh, again, so people, let's say you, if you have a, just, just as an example, mm-hmm. you got a student who happened to be sitting in the middle of the classroom in their positive case. So there's this, you know, six foot radius kind of circle around them. And everyone who's within that circle is probably going to be a close contact because presumably they were sitting in their, in their desks for more than 15 minutes. Right. right. So they all, so everyone in that in that circle is a close contact people on the outskirts of that circle and say in the far corners of the room or would probably not be close contacts and don't have to be quarantined and don't have to be notified of their exposure now how are you going to differentiate differentiate who's who if you don't know who is sitting where so we learned this very early on this year that this was a problem so the solution was we really started to urge schools and teachers say, even if you don't usually use a seating chart, during this pandemic, it actually becomes an essential tool or a critical tool. So we're now suggesting that all, all you know, teachers in all classes have seating charts for their periods and try to have the kids sit in the same space every day so you don't have them just you know, mixing, uh, remixing their positions day to day. Got it, okay, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So despite the guidance and despite the best efforts, I imagine there's had to have been some spread among students in schools. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not there's been outbreaks in schools and, and what what is an outbreak? How do we define an outbreak in a school? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so an outbreak refers to um, a situation where we either have, you know, have established or have good evidence that there has been transmission in the school. Um, Again, just to contrast with the previous example we talked about, I just finished talking about where, uh, who are close contacts to a case. So -hmm. what happens when someone's a close contact? Well, if they're vaccinated, pretty much they don't have to change anything. That's one of the, you know, one of the benefits of getting fully vaccinated these days. You don't have to quarantine even when you're exposed to a case. But if they're not vaccinated, they're going to have to quarantine and they're going to, you know, miss out on some school time and some other activities. That being said, none of them may end up turning positive, right? right. And if that's the case, and we hope that's the case, um, then that's not transmission in the school, because the person who tested positive, we don't know where they got it from. They could have gotten it. They could have gotten it from someone at home, from a friend mm-hmm. that they went to visit, from another from from the restaurant they went to eat at. With it, we don't know where they got it. So that's not school transmission. But what happens when we've got a cluster of cases from the school, um, and a cluster? I mean, cluster just means more than one. But for the definition of an outbreak, we're talking about three or more three or more cases Mm -hmm. that all occur within a 14-day period and that there's some type of linkage between those those cases. Because again, a a very large school, you you have high schools with 2,000 students, 2,000 kids or more. um, And if they're doing lots of testing in a high, in in a situation where there's lots of community transmission, you could very easily identify three cases in your school within 14 days, but they may have nothing to do with each other, 
So that's not an outbreak. Because right. again, we're looking for transmission in the school. Now, what about if these three cases, three or more cases, all happen to have the same classroom in common? Or two of them have the classroom in common and the other one was with one of the people during lunchtime or during recess. And basically, if we can link the three cases together over time and space within those 14 days, that's probably transmission. Mm -hmm. And when we reach that point, three or more cases within 14 days that are linked, we call them uh, epidemiologically linked to be to, to talk fancy. But again, it just basically <laughs> means there's some time and space, you know, uh, linkages between them. So when that happens, we would open an outbreak investigation. And, our, you know, we have outbreak management teams that actually go out to the school, uh, do some very intensive investigation on these particular cases, on their contacts. Um, we, we're quite aggressive about this. Because if there is transmission going on in the schools, we want, to, we want to eliminate that and we want to stop that immediately or as quickly as we can. So in that case, we work very closely with the school administration and school staff to um, notify people who need to be notified, isolate and quarantine those who need to be isolated and quarantined, do additional testing for people who may be suspected um, contacts and do whatever, do basically do whatever needs to be done to end transmission right there, right there. And, mm -hmm. and then, um, and that's, and that's basically what happens during an outbreak investigation or, or during an outbreak. Is that why testing is important in schools as well? So we get, so sort of get ahead of, 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 of that. Yeah. Well, testing, uh, testing is a, an important strategy to do case finding, um, particularly since we know the virus that causes COVID-19 often causes an asymptomatic infection. People are infected and don't even know they're infected. They don't mm -hmm. have any symptoms. Mm -hmm. And um, although they may not have as high a viral load as people who are really sick, and they may not transmit as easily as people who are really ill and symptomatic and are coughing, they do transmit even without symptoms. We know that for a fact. There's been enough investigation of different cases and, and um, contacts and outbreaks to know that asymptomatic people can transmit the virus. So the best way to find those people and to sort of remove them from the school population temporarily mm. is to do regular screening and regular testing. The higher the level of um, um, viral infection in the community, the, the more important that screening testing is because, you know, you're going to find more cases that way. Um, in a situation where community transmission is very, very low and there aren't many people out and about who are infected and have the virus, the testing becomes a little bit less valuable right. okay. or less important because you're going to have to test so many people just to find a few cases um, but right now, with the situation we're in now with high community transmission, tra transmission, the testing's quite important, and it's very helpful. Got it. Okay, so I I've read in the popular media a couple of stories, and I believe they were from adjoining counties, but I wanted to confirm this with you. Uh, stories of teachers who had read aloud, for example, to their like kindergarten or first or second grade class, 
and inadvertently uh, spread COVID in the classroom. Has this happened in our county? Well, we have seen, I I don't know particularly about reading to, to students, but I can say in the in uh, some of the outbreaks mm. that we have investigated, which have occurred in the classroom, a lot of these are occurring in elementary school classrooms because there's no vaccine available, generally for the children in elementary school classrooms, right? And no one under 12 has uh, access to vaccination at this point, hasn't been authorized yet for people that young. So you're talking about a classroom that's completely vulnerable, completely naive and, and um, mm-hmm. you know, susceptible to the virus. And we have had a few unfortunate situations where it appears that the teacher in the room was the index case, meaning the one who introduced it into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And in some in some of those cases was not a va- was not vaccinated, mm. um, so therefore they're more likely to uh, be ill, have symptoms, have higher viral loads that they're spreading, and yes, uh, we have several examples of classrooms like that where it appears the teacher did infect a number of the students in the classroom. Okay, and then the 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 other side of the same coin. What if I'm a teacher? How do I What's the best way to protect myself and to keep my students safe uh, well, as, as I'm coming back into the classroom to teach this year? Yeah, that's, that's a good, good question. Well, I top three. Here's the top three. Okay. The first one is get vaccinated. The second one is get your COVID-19 shots. And the third is... Uh, vaccination. (laughs) I'm sensing a pattern there. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, that is, and and that, again, that's not the only way to protect yourself, Mm -hmm. but you know, vaccination is, is the answer to Mm -hmm. this, to this pandemic at this point. You know, we went for almost a year or so without, without vaccine. And the only things we could really do um, were, you know, other mitigation strategies which were effective but you know totally kind of changed our way of life mm-hmm. you know again which you you only had masking you only had distancing um cohorting a lot of activities right um suspended a lot of businesses shut down for some time so the, really the way for our just society our community our economy uh to recover from this and that includes the education sector is that, you know, everyone who can get vaccinated needs to get vaccinated. So the teacher who wants to protect themselves, best thing they can do is get vaccinated if they're not already fully vaccinated. If they want to protect their their family at home and make sure they're not possibly, you know, bringing um, an infectious agent like, <laughs> like SARS-CoV-2, home, uh, the best thing to do is get vaccinated and get your family vaccinated. Mm-hmm. If they want to protect the, you know, their students in the classroom as best they can, get vaccinated. And if any of their students are old enough to get vaccinated, promote vaccination for them as well. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, remember masks, masks are, um, are required indoors, but that is going to provide not only protection for those around you, but also protection for the individual. Because while I'm wearing my face covering, I am filtering some of the air that I'm breathing. Um, It should be noted in in the workplace, this is part of Cal OSHA requirements, 
um, anyone who is unvaccinated actually can request a higher level uh, protective mask, uh, a respirator like an N95 mask, mm. and the employer is required to supply it. Uh, has to be, a, you know, they, they don't have to do a um, uh, a professional fitting, fit testing, but they do have to provide a proper size mask uh, and some instructions on how to create a good seal with a mask. So that's that's something that's available. Um, if even uh, short of get of wearing a respirator, one could do, do double masking, which mm -hmm. appears to provide some mm -hmm. better protection. So a double mask would mean that you would wear uh, the, your first layer would be a surgical mask, um, you know, which provides better f air filtration than just a cloth face covering. But if you put a cloth face covering over the surgical mask, it actually creates even a better fit and sort of more, you know, more mm -hmm. coverage and more uh, uh, protection. So there's several things that the teacher can do to uh, help help protect themselves and those about uh, uh, those around them. But the number one is get vaccinated. Got it. Just final question here. Where can people go to keep up to date with the information? Is the public health website at publichealth.lacounty.gov? Uh, yeah, is, there, we have, is there a special spot for schools on that page? There is, there is. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, there's, there's lots of, lots of great information on the website. And uh, before I forget, let me, um, let me pitch for the uh, ambassador program as well. Oh. Before I, uh, yeah. so, yeah, absolutely. If you go to, um, is it publichealth.lacounty.gov? There's um, a, a plethora of guidance documents and. Including the including some specifically geared toward parents of school age kids and how you can best uh, um, contribute to prevention um, in the school. But we do have a special program that I'll just um, um, pitch before we stop, uh, which is uh, our ambassador program. We actually have a program both for parents and for students who are interested. So our parent ambassador program basically provides you with um, orientation and training, a virtual session. Uh, every person who goes through the training receives a certificate so that you will, will be an official public health ambassador, parent ambassador. And uh, I think it's just a, a good way to get um, very factual, accurate, and helpful up-to-date information about the about the COVID-19 virus and the pandemic and what you know information that you can share with your peers you know other family members friends neighbors um, that may help to keep your you know impact your community and keep it safe and your children who are students in school are eligible to join the student ambassador program um, and they actually get um, a series of lectures from public health experts on a variety of topics, you know, related to public health and, and um, disease prevention. And hopefully they'll do the same. They'll talk to their peers and or go on. Uh, I don't know. What do they call this thing? Social media? I've heard about Something it. Something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. What it's that is. close. Close enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the email address mm -hmm. to send your um, inquiry or your interest is tk12 ambassador at ph.lacounty.gov. So that's tk like transitional kindergarten mm -hmm. and 12. 
So it's like TK through 12, right? TK12 ambassador at ph.lacounty.gov. And uh, one of our staff members will get back to you and give you some more information and let you know how to register for the, for the next set of, um, of uh, uh, lectures that we're doing. Well, thanks. This is great. You're welcome. Part three, kids and COVID. If you're a parent like me, and you're active on social media like me, and you seek out health information online, like me, chances are you've come across conflicting information about whether vaccines are safe for kids. So to help cut through the mess of opinions and information that's available online, we reached out to an expert. My name is Nava Yagana. Dr. Yagana is trained as a pediatric infectious disease doctor. And I'm working um, initially with healthcare facilities during the pandemic. And now I've switched over to working mostly on vaccines and vaccinating um, individuals and school-based clinics. So I think my official title now is that I am the vaccine unit lead for the education branch. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. So uh, Dr. Yagana, I would really love for you to share a little bit of information about where we are with the vaccines. There seems to be so much promise and we've gotten so much um, better off since the vaccines have been out, but what's where are we with vaccines currently? So I think um, as many of our listeners will know, we have three really incredible vaccines available in the United States. And we are so fortunate in that um, we have easy access to these vaccines. So anyone who wants to get vaccinated can go to a nearby pharmacy or a local distribution center and get a vaccine for free. Uh, these vaccines are highly effective, um, incredibly effective, one would say, about uh, in, in preventing illness, uh, severe illness especially. So people, it, it can prevent you from getting hospitalized. It um, can prevent death. Um, and so as far as where we are with the vaccines, I think we're in a really good place where we have three different options that are highly effective and very safe. So where are we with vaccines in kids? I know there's, an, there's a certain age where kids can become eligible to get the vaccine. Is that right? Exactly. So um, the initial studies that were done were really focused on the people who are at highest risk for having um, severe illness and death from coronavirus. So they were very focused on an older population. Uh, so the one of the drug manufacturers, Pfizer, made it a studied individuals 16 years of age and older. Um, so initially, the licensure is for 16 years of age and older. They then started enrolling children 12 to 15, and they were able to show in thousands of children that this vaccine was um, very safe and very effective in that age range as well. So they received an emergency use authorization for the 12 to 15 year olds, and that was in April. So anyone who has a child that's 12 years of age and older can get them vaccinated against coronavirus. The dose that they would need is Pfizer. Um, it would have to be two doses, three weeks apart. And then after you get your second dose, um, you wait two more weeks, and that's when your immune system is primed enough that you're fully protected. As far as children who are less than 12, so of course everyone is really eager to hear more vaccine news about that group. And um, all I can tell you is that there has been studies recruiting patients, or I shouldn't I should say patients, recruiting children who are five years of age to 11 um, 
for Pfizer as well as um, some of the other manufacturers. And once uh, we have that data, we will hopefully find out if the, if the vaccine is also going to be recommended for that age group. Uh, what we've heard is that that data should be available, hopefully, um, by the end of this month to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration will then review the data very carefully to make sure that the vaccine is safe and effective. Once they have that um, information and they're able to determine that, then we'll be able to um, have recommendations for a pediatric vaccine for five to 11 year olds um, with the CDC and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices weighing in. So thank you, that's so clear. And, and even so, some parents are expressing concerns around giving the vaccine to their child, given that it's emergency use. What would you say to a parent who expresses concern around giving a vaccine, giving the vaccine to their child at this point? I think it's very normal to, of course, want your child to be extremely safe. Um, so, you know, having concerns about safety of different um, medicines or vaccines is a very normal thing to want to assure. Um, I would say that that's, that's a completely reasonable request. Um, what I would also say is that we know that we've had over 4 million children who've tested positive for coronavirus. And we know that although COVID-19 infection can be milder in children. We have had many who've been hospitalized and even you know, hundreds who have died from coronavirus infection. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there's a subgroup that will go on and have um, long COVID, which means that they will have symptoms of fatigue, palpitations, unable to do the activities, difficulty concentrating. So for all those reasons, we wanna protect our children. The vaccine has been given to now millions of adolescents from 12 years of age and over. Um, and all the data we've collected shows that it's extremely safe and extremely effective. We also have data collected here in Los Angeles County showing the same thing, that if you're fully vaccinated, your teenager is less likely to have infection. They're very unlikely to get hospitalized. And another factor is that they're less likely to give it to other members of the family. So we know that some of us, you know, have uncles, aunts, grandparents, et cetera, that are that are immune compromised and maybe don't respond to the vaccine as well or maybe haven't had a chance to be fully vaccinated. Um, being able to vaccinate our teenager will also make them less likely to give it to other people in your family and keep everyone safe. Mm -hmm. And then finally. What, some of the benefits of being fully vaccinated is that um, because, you know, the vaccines are so effective at preventing disease and transmission, you don't have to quarantine. And I know that if I had a child who was in high school and wanted to attend classes, wanted to go to, you know, uh, sporting events, was part of a team, we have a lot of football teams right now, um, it would be really important for them to be able to continue to go to school, continue to do uh, practice, continue to participate in theater or music, whatever they're interested in, um, if they should be exposed. You know, as long as they don't have any symptoms, they won't have to quarantine. I've read on some blogs where some parents are worried about breakthrough in infections among adults. Have we have, which I know is a very, uh, a minuscule, tiny, tiny percentage of, of the total adults that have been vaccinated that actually have that. Have we seen any breakthrough infections among um, children? Uh, so breakthrough infections means that someone will have symptoms of coronavirus or will have a test that's positive for coronavirus, even when they're fully vaccinated. And we do see breakthrough infections in both adults, and we've 
will likely have them in children as well. Um, luckily, what we found is that even though people might have an infection, meaning that they have a positive test and may have some mild symptoms, so they might have a runny nose, they might have some fever and cough, they don't um, they don't end up getting severely ill. So they don't end up having to be in hospitalized. Um, and luckily, they don't die from coronavirus. So it becomes more of a upper respiratory infection um, and less of a life-threatening <laughs> disease. So it's much thing, less serious. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think our goal is um, that we, you know, we get everyone vaccinated. So every if every breakthrough infection is something that could be handled um, at home with some chicken soup and Motrin um, and not necessarily a hospitalization um, and, you know, different medicines. Uh, yeah. Definitely, I think uh, it's very important, even if you're fully vaccinated, if you start having symptoms of cough and fever, or if you've been exposed to someone who has coronavirus, to make sure you get tested, because it can happen. You can have a breakthrough infection. And if you are infected and you're having symptoms, you really should stay home. Um, you need to isolate for the full 10 days. You need to protect um, the community around you. What would you say to, to, to parents of children that are too young to, to get the vaccination? How should parents protect their, their very young children? Yeah, so I, I am in that category of, of <laughs> parents as well. My children are both mm -hmm. too young to get fully vaccinated. Um, so we do a lot of mitigation strategies layered on top of each other. Number one is, you know, everyone around them um, is fully vaccinated as far as I can control, um, meaning that both my husband and I, grandparents, aunts, uncles, babysitters, teachers, anyone who really comes in contact with my children as much as possible, I would uh, prefer for them to be fully vaccinated um, because we know fully vaccinated people are less likely um, going to transmit infection. They're, more, they're less likely to get infected and they're also less likely to transmit the infection. The other thing we do is um, you know, wearing masks. So if we're around people, who are unvaccinated, who are not in our immediate family, we do try to make sure our children are keeping their masks on their faces. Um, and then, of course, outside is better than inside, being in less crowded, well-ventilated spaces. So uh, making sure that they are taking advantage of this amazing Southern California weather as much as possible. You know, I talked to uh, Dr. Gilchek yesterday for the podcast. And he mentioned a couple of the same things that you just mentioned, um, uh, only uh, applying them to this, the classroom, you know, keeping really good ventilation, wearing masks. And it just made me think about normalizing mask wearing at home. Does, do you think that that helps um, when the kids, you know, get to school? Like they're sort of like used to wearing a mask at home. Does that, do you think that that would make it easier in the school environment? I think that's something that definitely you can discuss with your child if it is a difficult, some kids don't have any issues with mask wearing. Um, they actually don't even notice they're wearing a mask and others, it's a really big challenge. They don't like it. They don't like the sensation of it. Um, and they feel like it's difficult to communicate. And I understand that it sometimes is really difficult to, um, to be able to see what people are saying, especially when they're learning language and they're trying to understand facial, facial expressions. Um, so as much as, possible, I actually encourage my children to take off their masks. I can hear them and see them when they're at home. Um, but that being said, if they were having difficulties at school keeping their mask on, I think this is something that can, you can 
train someone to do. We've all been trained <laughs> to wear masks and to not touch our faces as often. Um, so yes, I think I think it's definitely something that you can work your with your child on. Um, wearing the mask indoors, reminding them to cover their nose, their mouth, and their chin, um, and to not fiddle with it, because that's the other issue that you see in children is that they like to touch it a lot. And really, the outside of the mask is uh, is it's not sterile. It's where, where all the bad stuff is. So trying to keep them from touching it. It's sort of, it's a filter, right? So the outside of the mask is you're filtering the air that's coming in. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to touch that. Right, so you know, right. teaching them to use their ear pieces to you know, put on and off instead. You mentioned communication and, and you know, keeping in, uh, being able to communicate with your family well. And, and I have the same issue. I have mumbling teenagers now, so I'm, I'm a little bit ahead of the, of the timeline of the family timeline than you are. So my, my teenagers are hard enough to understand. And then you put a mask on them and it's impossible to understand them. Um, so I, I get it. I totally understand the, the demasking thing when you're at home with your core unit of family, so you can, so you can engage better. And it all, when you said that, it made me think about how families are dealing with the pandemic just in general, especially uh, I can't imagine having little kids like it must be so challenging right now for families of um, little kids, like the normal everyday stressors on top of the pandemic. It's got to be really tough on families. What would you say or do you have any advice for families in terms of supporting their mental health and their just approach to dealing with this crisis. Yeah, I think this is um, something that's very near and dear to almost every PD, I mean, every parent, but also every pediatrician's heart. We're seeing a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, mm. um, a lot of, you know, maladjustment, having, you know, the routines have been all disrupted. Every child is now struggling with this constant change in protocols and, um, and you know what what's considered to be acceptable what's not acceptable um so it is a challenge for all of us um, including children and i think it's really important to be cognizant of that and to be patient and to communicate with your child um to let them know that you understand that this is a very difficult period and everyone's trying to do what's right and trying to do what's appropriate for their family their community and that everyone might have a different relationship with these covid um COVID pandemic. They, you know, some people might have lost family members. Uh, some people are, you know, very, very um, affected by everything that's going on and others and might, they not, might not be as affected. So just having that understanding um, and that patience and that, um, I guess, grace of recognizing that people have different relationships and we just need to take care of each other in our community. As far as the mental health issues. I think every school is trying to do some more training um, and hiring more staff to really address these in the school setting. There's a dire lack of mental health professionals for children. Uh, and this pandemic has really highlighted that. So trying to make sure that um, you are talking to the school, talking to your pediatrician and addressing some of these issues early on is really important. But I don't think it's a it's, it's something that everyone's struggling with. It should not be an area of shame. Um, and it just needs to be we need to recognize it and um, appropriately address it. 
can you point families to any resources that are available? I know our website has a has a ton of resources, and that's uh, publichealth.lacounty.gov. But are there any other resources that you would recommend for families? Yes, Steve, I think we do have a lot of resources, and I have to apologize. I don't know the website off the top of my head, but our Department of Mental Health has been really working on this. Um, so I'm not sure if this is something we can look up and I can give it to you later. But or they, maybe we can we can link them in the show notes. That would be great. If you great. want to yeah, talk about what's there, great. I can I can add a link for sure. I think that would be good because um, I know that, you know, we have now um, links to different apps that can help with mindfulness. Um, people are undergoing training on how to become a better um, advocate for mental health. But I, I, I know there's a lot of resources. I just don't have it on the tip of my fingers. Oh, that's okay. Well, we can add a, a link in the show notes and, um, you know, really easy if you just open up your podcast app and scroll down to the show notes, there's an, there'll be an active link there that that uh, listeners can click on and, and go right to the website. Well, I thank you for the work you do uh, for the department. And I really, it was really a pleasure to meet you and, and to, uh, to, to talk to you today. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And I hope that um, together we can get our vaccine rate high enough that hopefully, you know, we can be in a better space and return to a more normal normal. I hope the same. I think we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> hopefully we can keep those masks on and get vaccinated, everybody, and get there together. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Very special thanks to our guests today, Marian Eldahabi, Dr. Rob Gilchek, and Dr. Nava Yagana. Today's show was produced by me with lots of help from Nyinye Manyadi, Gia Jaising, Beth Kilgore, and the incomparable Brett Morrow with DPH Public Affairs. The LA County Department of Public Health is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents of Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on all social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast. <laughs>